This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And good morning to you. This is Brooke Spector, and this is the Deep Dive. And we are really pleased today to have a guest, uh, somebody I've wanted to have this conversation with for, for months, actually, but she's been ridiculously busy doing all kinds of important things. And that is, of course, uh, one of my colleagues at the Daily Maverick, uh, Ferry Ohafaji, who has um, an illustrious uh, range of experience and background, and she's authored books, and she's she's dug deep into the workings and um, the misbehaviors of people in all manner of places. But she's, I mean, let, let, let's be a little bit, Broader than just investigative as an, as an attorney, as a, as a journalist, she has, uh, she's a real, she's a real citizen of Johannesburg. She's, she's born here, brought up here, went to local high schools. In fact, she went to the same high school my wife went to, which is an interesting coincidence in my life. She went to the university that Bitwaters Ron. She's been an editor, uh, at a number of important journals in this country like City Press and the Mail and Guardian. And she was engaged with uh, HuffPost when it was operating here. And she joined the Daily Maverick uh, a few years ago. And it was a, it was a match made in sort of a secular heaven for all of us. But she's also authored a number of important books. The one that, that sticks in my mind most in a way it's not the one that's getting all the news coverage now and all the sales now. It was a book titled, What If There Were No Whites in South Africa? Which was controversial when it came out. Controversial for a lot of ways, I think. But I thoroughly enjoyed it because it was provocative and because it, it didn't claim to have all the answers, but it did offer new ways of looking at some older, more established questions forcing readers to sort of get out of the rut that was in the middle of the road and think about other possibilities. But then, of course, most recently, uh, her book, Days of Zondo, which is not a science fiction novel. It is, in fact, about the Zondo Commission of Inquiry, a big, thick doorstop of a book, which goes into graphic and, in fact, almost molecular detail about all the crimes and of a mission commission and the makings and, and the behaviors of the, of looking at these crimes. So we're delighted, really pleased to have you with us this morning. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you very much, Brooks. It's, it's lovely to be with you. Um, and thank you for that introduction and for having read, um, what if there were no whites, um, in South Africa and seen what I was trying to do with the book. Well, it was painfully obvious to me what you were doing, and I'm not entirely sure why people, some people who read it were mystified by it. But nevertheless, you continue to plow new ground in investigations and thinking about things. But I want to roll this back a bit. Um, sure. When you were starting out as a journalist, or even before you were, quote unquote, a journalist, um, who were your professional models and who... Who got you thinking that this was the career that choice that you wanted to follow? Who were you? Who were your exemplars and models? I, I less thought about thought about journalism as a career or professional option 
but rather as a revolutionary option. Because I went to the Christian Botha High School, CJB, where Ruth Spector Jacobs also attended. And it was a very political school. Um, at that school, I was the editor of the school newspaper called the Green Times. And for me, really, that was just always a form of political expression and a way of convening or bringing people together um, with regard to a, a common objective we had. And that common objective was obviously the overthrow of the apartheid system. So I've always understood journalism as a way of influencing how societies are shaped. And I guess that continues to be my my objective or my interest. So just to be honest with you, when I did try and go and work at, at Bloomberg, I couldn't understand why I wasn't fitting in, even though they've created a most marvel marvelous ambiance for people to work in. They care very deeply for their people. And only on reflection did I come to understand that it didn't suit me to serve the market as it's described, that I needed to be working in a bigger public square and for a greater public interest. But that only came to me later, which I now realize was, was intrinsic to what I've chosen um, to do with my life. Huh? You've been doing it for a number of years, but when you started as I don't want to say literary models, but journalistic models. Uh, yes. Who were the authors, the writers, or the uh, the exemplars that that you held up as your kind of guiding star to get you to the way of doing this kind of thing? The obvious um, role model for me um, was Don Matera, firstly. Um, he was a playwright, a poet, and then also the um, the head of the training program of the then Weekly Mail, which I start, which I first was a trainee at, and then also um, Anton Harbour and Erwin Minoyim. Uh, was I loved their start to story. You know, the the Daily Mail was closed down for political reasons by its owners, and they pulled their uh, retrenchment packages to start the Weekly Mail, which then went on to establish a, a groundbreaking um, footprint for itself, both locally and internationally, as the key anti-apartheid newspaper for that final push against the system. Uh, and that's obviously where I cut my teeth. So it was, it, it, they were my role models. And then later on, because I had studied African literature at university, I also began to closely, very closely read the drum generation of, of writers and, and try to follow in their footsteps to report like they did. I'm not, I'm not quite of that literary and poetic voice of that generation, but they offered us a way of rooting yourself in communities and always seeing the joy of those that, that I, that I've tried to take with me. I've just, Finished reading the um, autobiography of uh, Juby Myatt uh, mm. with a with with a foreword by the scholar who studied her, um, and again it's a generation that was so effervescent and evergreen that they still offer um, role models for for journalists and certainly remain uh, role models for me. Huh? 
you mentioned the drum writers, and I, I somehow I can't, I can't, I'm having a little trouble imagining you bootlegging your way into a potato farm and on the east, what was then <laughs> the Eastern Transvaal to, to do an expose of, of the treatment of workers there. You, you don't look like the potato digging type, actually. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it would have been a little difficult, um, to, uh, to do that. Um, but I was very inspired by how they located themselves in, in the grassroots, how they, how Ruth first always maintained very strong connections to working class struggles. And as a labor reporter, um, I tried to do that in my work, you know, to always, um, embed myself, be it in mine, worker communities, clothing worker communities and to deeply understand the workers um, perspective um, on the world. So that was my first uh, specialization was a labor reporter with the fabulous Drew Forrest, who was the labor editor at the time. Um, And that taught me how to always make sure that working class culture, um, working class issues were at the top of my mind um, as I reported. And you mentioned all these amazing names and I realized it's sort yes. of like a, it, it's, it's almost like a, a roster of people I, I, I came to know over the years in this country yes. in many, many different circumstances. We, and I realize now I probably were, was reading your reporting in the, the, uh, the weekly mail, uh, from the beginning without actually focusing on who it was who was doing that writing, except for maybe the first couple of issues. Uh, we were reading it consistently all the way through the late 1980s and into the 90s and, and on and on. But sincerely, you made a serious contribution to the national dialogue uh, on the joint predicament that the country is now in the middle of. Uh, how do you define this predicament and how did it happen and why did it happen? And who is responsible for it all? And we're going to let Ferriel contemplate that for just a minute, and we'll take a short break. Uh, this is Brooke Spector with the Deep Dive, Dive, and we'll be right back after this important message. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We are back with the deep dive and this is Brooke Spector and our special guest today is Barry Ohafaji, a veteran reporter, analyst, uh, influencer, uh, thought provoker. I left her with the question or with questions really that uh, since given the fact that she's made a real contribution to the national dialogue over uh, the country's predicament or predicaments, how does she define the nature of this predicament and how did we get here and who's responsible for it all? So Brooks, that's a really, I would like to throw it back to you and say, which of those should we discuss? You know, energy, the state of our cities. Um, and if we take a, a view, I mean, sometimes I think we, we, prosecute a narrative that the state is failing. But if you look at the definitions of state failure, and this is something you would know much better than me, then then that's not true of our country. And I suppose for me, what you do with investigative journalism and with holding the mirror up is to 
enhance that um, democratic praxis or experience or the experience of freedom for more people. And when government fails, you hold that up so that you can fix that rather than, I suppose, sinking into sinking into despair and then making that um, prophecy come true. So perhaps you, you can break it down for me a little bit. Which which of those things would you like us to speak about, social cohesion or energy or the state of our cities? The state of the cities, because you've done some very, I, I don't want to use the word nice in, in, in a pejorative way at all, but you've done some very nice reporting on the granular detail of the decay in social and physical services to neighborhoods that aren't the most prestigious in in the city. And this points to the way in which constituents are are failed by their uh, supposed civil servants and uh, political leaders. So take the perspective of managing and building and fixing and improving and maintaining um, our cities. So I suppose I, I came to the Senate. It's a specialization I really want to deepen. Is It was a, a work of curiosity because I'd always covered the city. This is what I've done for over 30 years now. That's a very long time, Brooke. I've, I've always located. Both, yes. <laughs> I've, I mean, I've located my, my reporting in Johannesburg because it's where I was born, where I work where my family lives. Several years ago, I, I began to feel like its decline was palpable. And I attribute no political response, party political responsibility for that. It's gone through various political hands. The ANC, Herman Mashaba, um, the DA leads it, leads the city now. And through all of those hands, you just began to see that this wonderfully vibrant city of such people and such potential that's always held a, a node on the global map was in very, very serious decline. Um, not cultural decline because it's a real firmament of, of fabulous cultural sense, sensibility, be it theater, be it fashion, be it literature. But that which holds it together, its road networks, electricity, streetlights to keep its people safe, um, dealing with the high numbers of homeless people on our streets, whom you see on every single intersection, sometimes four to eight people at a large intersection. The city seemed to be careening out of control of any kind of governance. And, and so I began to seek to understand that. And that's where I find my... Um, greatest interest lies now is how does urban development as, as we understand it in its biggest picture, um, how does that happen in a context like ours? And why is Johannesburg in the doldrums it is? And so I've, I've sought to understand that, um, much more than I ever have. So I spend a whole lot of time focusing on the state of the city's 13,000-kilometer road network and trying to understand why traffic lights seem to be a part of our past story. They simply don't work anymore, even though this is such a vital trade node um, on our continent and also in the developing world and in the world. So that's where I apply my work now. And I'm coming to an understanding that that is about administ- the, the 
change of the administration and seeking to understand how the city is administered rather than its party political governance. How is it governed? As journalists, we tend to focus there. Who makes up the coalition? Which ANC member is going to be mayor? Is Mpoh Palazzi going to make a run for the DA leader in April, as, as I think she will do? Um, but what I'm more interested in now is nuts and bolts. You know, how do cities work? And I'm probably going to expand my focus out of just Johannesburg to begin looking at Chwane, to begin looking at Mahali City, um, etc. Huh? No, that, that's important. I mean, uh, American reporters, especially political reporters, and I, I use them as an example rather than yes. as a uh, as an exemplar, they're often criticized for focusing on what is derisively called the horse race politics. Who's ahead? Who's behind? Who's going to make a move? As if that was the most important thing about a country's political, social, economic, intellectual life. In contrast to what happens to the place you live in and how do you traverse your day yes. in an environment where the road has got a pothole the size of a Volkswagen, the traffic lights have stopped working, there are sure. people begging for sustenance at every street corner, and when you get home, the electricity is off. Difficult, huh? And, but that's the, that's the reality that uh, so many of us focus on, uh, rather than who's ahead and who's, and who's behind. Although reporters find that an easier path in a way to, to traverse. So as a journalist, um, I've begun to find a, a greater sense of explanation for my curiosities in why is it like that? If you have a city with a 77 billion rand budget with additional allocations from the fiscus for specific ring fence um, projects, then then why is that our experience of the city? Um, I read quite widely on cities around the world, especially those that have rise to the challenge of, of addressing the needs of their poorest, the homeless people. Um, how do they do that? What are the most interesting ways of creating shelters in the city, making people part of the city economy? And where we could start, I suppose, is there's this army of recyclers in Johannesburg who do such a vital job of recycling at source. They are a fabulous resource. And yet we consign them where you see where they live in these in parks. They take over municipal buildings which are unoccupied in Fitas or Frededorp. They've just taken over one of the streets there. So how could we make it easier for people who do this vital role? And I'm not seeing any of that um, interesting urban thinking which you might see in developing cities in the world. And my my thesis I'm I'm developing evidence for right now is that Johannesburg is subject to the same kind of patronage um, politics which we've seen afflicting the national sphere of our country. You're seeing exactly the same patterns locally. So potholes, for example, potholes are because the Johannesburg Roads Agency has now in person after person after person just appointed political cronies, either of the IFP, the latest guy is appointed by an Action SA, 
um, MMC or member of the mayoral committee. So it's just a way of putting in place your person. They give out the contracts to your cronies and you get a little bit back into your pocket. And for me as Transburg resident citizens, that's what we need to be, uh, what we have to confront. And, and increasingly I'm, I'm thinking about ways to do that. Huh? When I studied urban politics, uh, in yes. University, um, a, what appears to be a century ago. Uh, <laughs> I took a course in obviously ur- uh, courses in uh, urban development, and one of the lessons that I gained from it, uh, when I once I learned how to put aside my my ideological view about what constitutes good versus bad governance, was the model uh, that was achieved in what were called machine politics cities in America, where the party, the political party, regardless of who it was, basically had an implicit contract with its citizens. Yes, you'll pay the taxes, but when your street needs cleaning or when your nephew needs a job or when your uncle has too many parking tickets, uh, will, you know, the ward counselor will help you out in exchange, you vote, we'll take care of the, the schools and this and that and the other thing. And yes, we'll take 15% off the top or maybe 20%. Sure. Um, and as a model, because it reflected the reality of human behavior rather than the ideology of perfection, um, sure. it worked. And one of the great exponents of this, uh, Mayor Daly in Chicago was finally beaten out of office when a massive snowstorm was not dealt with. The streets were not plowed. Uh, the, the electricity did not work. And after years and years of being able to say, my model works, yeah, of course, there's a little bit of hmm, favoritism here and there, and a little bit of hmm, corruption here and there, but everything works. And the difference seems to be you get the corruption here, but things don't work. So the, the model is sort of a one-way flow. That's really interesting to you, which is why I love chatting to you, because you can speak about so many places in the world and enrich our, our debates here with that experience. I think that via the preferential procurement system and the party, closed party list system, we've also had that implicit contract built into our politics since 1994. Um, that there is going to be that kind of extraction to keep things working. But I do believe in Johannesburg that that contract has also failed. So we haven't um, had this the snowstorm you speak about. But last December, the flood, I think, in the city and how it was completely unable to cope um, took us pretty close because at the same time you had these crushing stage four um, load shedding. So I think we either go two ways now is that citizens wake up and somehow exercise greater leverage. What you've seen happening in a number of small towns and districts is that people are redirecting their rates payments into a trust and they sink to things themselves. They fix 
switch treatment works, they fix the roads. Some of them have gone to court and some are just doing it. In a city like this one, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. But I do think we need a structure that's separate from politics um, in order to push and say that implied contract is simply not working anymore. Um, what's happened is that it's tilted. Everybody's so focused on the state, the local state being an opportunity rather than a service is that all it's become is a, an opportunity for those who are extracting from it, be it salaries, be it contracts, etc. The service aspect of it is completely lost. And we're going to have to recalibrate or refine that balance unless we say that we are going to accept perhaps a future like, like Lagos, um, where else, like many cities of South America, where you don't really expect anything from your local government and you make a plan around it. You buy a four by four to get through the potholes, you rely on generators and you have, like me, part of your household budget is just, I'm going to give to people standing on the corners. Yeah. I'm not, um, organized enough to make a batch of sandwiches every day, but I do give people at the corners money. It's part of my, my budget now. And I'm just wondering which of those two directions we're going to head in, or maybe it's going to be a bit of a blend. Eh? Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned Lagos. I spent some time there. Uh, as yes. I, think you, I think you may have as well. And um, the idea, I stayed in a little bed and breakfast for a couple of months, and there was a giant a giant pothole right in front of the place. Yes. And the uh, I, I talked with the owner of the bed and breakfast, and I said, "Why don't you fill in the pothole? I mean, this has got to be, you know, bad for business." Yes. Said, you, you don't understand. If I fill the pothole in, the traffic flow on my road will triple. Oh, that's a fabulous story. <laughs> People will use it instead of the main road, which is overcrowded. So I'd rather have the pothole, let people slow down, stop, swerve around it. And if they have to come into my compound, that's fine. But otherwise, mm. it's it's my defense against an unbearable uh, traffic flow. We're speaking with Ferial Hafiji, a uh, veteran reporter, analyst, author, thinker. And this is The Deep Dive, and we'll be back in just a minute after this important message. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We are back again. This is the Deep Dive. This is Brooke Spector, and we're speaking with Ferial Hafiji, one of my favorite people. She's beginning to think through the way of reporting. Well, maybe not beginning to, but deeply engaged in thinking through the way to report on uh, national crises, failure, challenges, issues, not from that big Olympian position of who's ahead in which party and who's going to be in charge of uh, which coalition, but what about the guts and the interstices and the networks that manage for well, for good or not so good, the things that are around us and make our lives bearable and possible. And it's not quite reporting from the ground up. It's more like trying to see the networks, the tissue of influences that affect how we uh, how we how we must live or can live or hopefully could live. Um, but I, I, I gave you a serious challenge earlier uh, 
uh, with a series of questions. And the last of those was, who is responsible for the way in which it has come to be the way it is? Uh, you, you did a lot of digging and uh, analyzing in uh, the uh, the days of Zondo, your, your most recent book, uh, on that as it relates to the phenomenon we now call state capture. Uh, but put it in a different way, who's responsible for the way in which the politics as they as they interrogate public administration, who's responsible for how it's gotten to be the way it is? How, where would if you had to blame somebody or something, who would you blame? I think we look for easy courses to hang the blames on. You know, it's mm-hmm. um, it's good to create a bogeyman because then it's a manageable outlet for 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 your despair. But what I learned covering the Zondo Commission for over three years is that what you what you have is a, a matrixed effect. So obviously the, the policies established by the ANC and the party's view of what corruption is or isn't very quickly made themselves felt. Um, the earliest scandals I perhaps tracked was the Sarafina one, mm-hmm. where massive public funds went into the making of um, an HIV AIDS education play, which was just beyond the the imagining of it. I mean, your friend Sylvia Follenhofen would tell you that, oh, my God, that was just ridiculous. And so we begin to normalize these outrageous figures for, and obviously there's an extraction pattern happening there already. It goes to... Mongeni and Gemma was the producer of that play, and then we see this massive enrichment. And I track about 28 of those scandals which happen, and at some point it transmogrifies into the system we now call state capture, where the rent extraction is much higher than the value that you get. And where it really comes to public notice is, is the crisis which afflicts us now is where we begin to see load shedding which is scheduled power cuts in 2007, 2008. And this from a country which which is one of its major selling points had always been a stable and relatively cheap form of um, electricity supply built on the minerals energy complex. So once that shifts and then your transport corridors also get ruined by what was happening at Transnet, People begin to look, and what they find is the Gupta family network. And, of course, that was a network enabled by the former president, Jacob Zuma, and I think that begins our um, like rapid descent into proper industrial-scale corruption. And that's the story that the Zondo Commission has, has made um, ambient and transparent for us if we care to to understand what happened, there's the story. But that's where it gets more complex. That Zondo Commission um, was also enabled by an ANC president, this time the former president, uh, the president, Cyril um, Ramaphosa, is about to enter his second term as ANC president. So the very party that takes you there begins the process of reform or renewal. And I think this is going to be our narrative for the next five years. How is it able to deepen that or does it just end its life as um, most liberation movements 
across our continent tend to do. They go into, they become smaller and smaller players and then other political um, movements or parties um, rise. One of the responses that I, that I hear, and I'm sure you hear it frequently as well, is, look, what happens, what happened, what happens here is not unique. Other countries have corruption. Other countries have difficulties with pseudo-royal families who e- extract resources uh, and uh, make off with the goods. Um, and it's unfair to criticize South Africa unduly for a phenomenon that is global, universal, and historically rampant, I guess. You know, you can, if if you want, you look back to to the American experience around 1900 and yes. uh, the, the the large trusts, what would have been effectively monopolies in transportation and coal and steel making and a number of other standard things, uh, basically owned congressmen and senators and told them which way they would vote. Um, you look at the evolution of post-Soviet Russia, something simply, you know, a, a, a business, a wannabe businessman gains a hold of a major national entity through promises to pay back a loan to purchase it and then forgets to pay for it, but keeps the company and nobody ever notices again or pays much attention. So that argument is that what you see here is not only not unique, but it, in effect, it's the way the world works. Yes, of course it is. I mean, look at what happened in Brazil after Lula won in, in December over Bolsonaro. There was a storming of, of that capital in, in Brasilia. So we've certainly seen the rise of the strongmen, be it in Russia, beat in Turkey, and all those systems are built on systems of patronage which elevate their person into the highest office. Um, obviously, the U.S. is is the model for that kind of, of politics. But around the world, what I'm also seeing, and maybe this is because I wear rose-tinted spectacles, is a resistance to that way of the world. And I because I guess of where I come from and how I understand politics, I do think we have to keep resisting um, that and throwing up our shoulders and saying, oh, well, I don't know what you expect. This is the the way the world works. Because if you accept that, I mean, those of us in the upper middle classes, middle classes, we're going to work our way around that. As I see my, myself doing, you put it in solar, um, you maybe buy a car that gets through potholes more easily, and then you'll be able – and, I mean, the industries arise from in failing states, and, and we're seeing that now. I was reading this morning, for example, that sale of um, armored cars, not armored – but cars for ordinary people shooting through the roof. We're now nearing um, South American type levels of sales for those. So uh, people of means are always going to make their way. But what happens in those systems and what you can see here is the black and working class poor get left behind. They get left behind in the worst schools, terrible hospitals, poor infrastructural setups in the poorest parts of our country. And as a South African I find it very hard to say, oh, well, that's the way the world works. I'll make my way in. I think we have to keep fighting that. If that's true, 
Um, yes. and I'm not sure, I'm not sure your glasses are rose tinted at all. Uh, I, I, <laughs> maybe they're, maybe they're sort of ultra realist rather than yeah. rose. But if this depressing landscape we have been surveying now for the past 30 minutes or so, if it's yes. true, the logical question that, that comes out of that is what do people like you, your relatives, me, my wife's relatives, people who think, read, understand, have experience in the universe. What do you do to begin to push back this tide rather than, you know, get a broom and try to sweep the sea back and say, oh, well, hopeless, we can't do anything about it now. We'll just drive around in an armored car and have a solar-powered house and hire armed guards, and that's the end of it. Yeah. I mean, ideally... Pray we don't get to, to, uh, to that point. Maybe we, we, we're heading there already. But in that, I'm very much guided by my, our other colleague, Mark Haywood, um, a social justice editor and activist. Um, I'm guided by the Archbishop Mahoba and, and his predecessor, Desmond Tutu. I'm guided by the founding father, Nelson Mandela's life. Um, by that entire generation who faced with the Leviathan of the apartheid state. You know, they didn't throw up their hands and just get on with making their lives workable for them. They always kept in mind this bigger picture. And so I don't think we need to, like, think existentially about this because our, okay, so take our environmental movement, the, the one that's rooted in communities. Civil society, extremely strong there. Take the watchdogs of the judiciary, organizations like Judges Matter, um, organizations like Section, uh, like um, the Helen the, the Sussman Foundation and Defend Our Democracy. Um, South African civil society is a formidable sector. And certainly where I'm going to locate myself in the next few years is as part of that civil society sector. And then what are the big things we need to think about? Well, energy, firstly, is um, to, to see whether we really need power ships, those massive lumbering beasts from um, Turkey. Um, what civil society going to do about that? Let's support that. Seismic surveying of the wild coast. Uh, mobilize against that. Um, the, and then the big picture, electoral reform, defend our democracy is doing an excellent campaign of what proper muscular electoral reform looks like. And then I suppose where I want to position my journalism is at the city level, beginning with Johannesburg, but building that out because I was really interested. I don't know if it was you saying the other day or I don't know if we were together, but the future of South Africa will be written in its cities. And yeah, I'm really, because that's, yes, because that's where, where people are coming to and where they are. And I'm really interested in how we make those lives, um, better for people. Huh? We are speaking with, um, the irreplaceable Ferial Hafaji, uh, journalist. That's so author. kind of you. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Very kind it's, of you. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not fishing for compliments. Um, I and know. we're going to have to take a short, uh, station break uh, for an important message to listeners. And this is the Deep Dive, Brooke Spector, and we'll be right back. 
This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is Brooke Spector, and this is the Deep Dive that you're listening to. And we're finishing up our conversation with uh, author, journalist, and uh, social thinker, Fariel Hafji, um, who is explaining to us, let me paraphrase it if I might, that yes, circumstances are bleak. There are enormous difficulties, but there are possibilities and there are, unlike in some countries, mechanisms, organizations and individuals that are pushing back. The future is going to be written by how successful that pushback is and how meaningfully citizens as a whole join into that exercise and push back jointly, severally, and individually uh, looking to the future, not just sitting at home at two in the morning wanting to know why the electricity is off and there's a pothole down the street and the street lights are dead and uh, there's woe is meism uh, afoot. Part of the problem, I guess, is that many people, we are to some degree succumbing to the, oh, well, what can we do? And we build our workarounds. People like you and me and our neighbors were unlikely to roll out uh, old tires and boulders into the center of Jan Smuts Avenue or Oxford Road and set fire to the, the street barricade and demand pothole fixing by Friday at noon or else. In a practical sense, what should people do today, tomorrow, the next day? Give us an an example of a practical activity we all could engage in that would make things even marginally better. So, Brooks, I think a lot about this, and I learn a lot from the way that um, the community of Ward 58, which is those old areas of Mayfair, Fordsburg, Friedador, how they organize themselves. Difficult circumstances, but extremely active citizens. And I suppose the era of apps and of social media offers us different ways of organizing ourselves. So very good ward committee, organized street by street. There's a specific young man I speak to quite often on my 702 slot, Istiak Sako, who, who really learns and has taught me that Everything lies in relationships. So he has extremely good relationships with the city power people. He builds relationships with the water, with Joburg water. He builds relationships with Pick It Up. He builds relationships with the roads agency. And while you may not see like massive step changes in the way those areas look, because they're pretty far down the road to decline, what you do see is local relationships that work for communities. In other places, like I say, in the smaller towns, Costa, etc., you've seen um, local business associations head to court. Uh, courts agree with them that things are really bloody awful. And so they're allowed to put their, uh, their local taxes into a trust pool and they work together to make things operate. And for me, those two models offer a way that goes beyond the the red hot anger of of burning things and putting rocks on the end to just because you need somebody to to 
to to hear you to to see what's happening and probably that's what our near term future is 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 going to look like um just for me i've i've decided and i think i was telling you i'm going to be looking for 10 green shoots every week and i've decided they'll be national and um regional so um pan african um because i think that we must rewire our minds to see these green shoots and this is something i've learned from two amazing women moki makura of african ofilter and varashni pillay who runs something called um explain.co.za is that if we as the media can establish different and more hopeful narratives without being revisionist in our thinking um you can thread a different feeling into countries continents regions so that you can see always um the light at the end of the tunnel and that's certainly a challenge which which I'm going to um try and try and meet um this year huh? I'm happy to run you through my first set if you'd like yeah I'm unfortunately we're we're pushing up against we're out of time time restrictions <laughs> we'll have you back at a couple of months maybe and you can go through uh an evaluation of what you have found in in this regard this year and we, I, we the green shoots collective we've been speaking with uh, Ferio Hafji a uh, journalist editor author emerging social activist and it has been a delight and a pleasure to have you on our show on the deep dive and uh i hope to hear from you in the future about the green shoots Maybe it'll be a whole woman eventually. I hope so. I'll keep my list for you. It was absolutely delightful um, to have a conversation with you today, Brooke. Again, thanks very much. And we hope that audiences will tune in again next week at this time for another conversation of The Deep Dive.